Well, good afternoon. Uh, this, the sermon text for today will be the book of Philemon. So if you can turn there. And please rise for the reading of the word. The book of Philemon, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother, beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you, nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers... I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, we indeed pray that you would illumine our hearts. You have called us yet again out from the world, out from under the word of the world, to hear a better word, the word of the cross the word of salvation, and the word of reconciliation in Christ. Would you work that word in our hearts that never returns void, but accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we just sang a hymn that extolled the boundless love of Jesus Christ, and it's 
the boundless love in the person and work of Christ that reconciled us to God in him. Our God is about restoring broken relationships. Jesus Christ is living proof of that, isn't he? Through his perfect life, his cursed death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his ascension, he accomplished that work to reconcile us sinners to him, to God. And we, his people, have peace with our creator. We, the church, have a restored relationship with our God. And this boundless love will never run dry. Even after years of a rocky relationship with him, he will never sit us down and say, I'm leaving you. We simply have too many irreconcilable differences. Even if you're in a rocky relationship now, perhaps even divorced, rest assured, you'll never be served divorce papers by God. For he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And he always keeps his promises. And this is really good news in a world filled with broken relationships, separated by irreconcilable differences, where men and women are simply looking out for themselves, for number one, doing what they feel is best for them. That's the world, right? The world says, who cares what God thinks? Who cares what your family or kids even think? You got to do what is best for you. You do you. If that means making others pay for the wrong that they've done, then so be it. Cut them out of your life. Let them be dead to you. And sadly, so many Christians in this world listen to that worldly advice. They choose the easy path of unreconciled relationships rather than the demanding Christ-like path of reconciliation, because it's a hard road to travel, to be sure. But scripture won't have us think any other way. There cannot be irreconcilable differences in the church. Now, obviously, there are biblical exceptions in the context of marriage. We think of adultery and we think of abandonment, but not in Christian relationships, which is what I want to focus on specifically tonight, but I think will have implications for marriage and the ways that we think about that. But what I specifically, specifically want us to see is that the, because of the gospel, differences are reconcilable in Christ Jesus. And we'll see this by looking at one of the most rockiest relationships you can possibly think of in the book of Philemon. Now you may be thinking, Philemon, can anything good come from Philemon? Uh, and the reason why, sadly, many people think that is when they turn to that letter, they think they're simply turning to find out the answer to the question, was Paul against slavery? And that becomes the only question people want to answer about that book, as if the only practical relevance of that book was for abolitionists in the 18th century, and there's no practical relevance for us today. But the main message of Philemon is about restoring relationships. But that message, sadly, has been even lost in translation, and you see that in the ESV. A key word for Christian relationships is the word that you're familiar with, koinonia. 
It's sometimes translated partnership, solidarity, fellowship. The word koinonia occurs in verse 6, if you look down, but it's translated and actually mistranslated sharing. The sharing of your faith is literally the koinonia of your faith. But when we hear sharing of your faith, we immediately think of evangelism, something related to that. We don't think about Christian relationships. A similar word to koinonia is used down in verse 17. It's the word, if you have me as a partner, it's often translated, koinonos. And so you have these similar words uh, creating what's called an inclusio. It's basically a rhetorical device to help you see what's the main focus of what I'm saying. The main focus is on koinonia, relationships. And in between, Paul is trying to lay out his appeal in intervening between these two people who are at odds. And he does so in verse 6, 4 to 6, by commending this guy named Philemon and commending what Luther calls him in a way that seems like holy flattery. He's trying to talk about how much he loves the saints and how much the Lord has worked in and through him, but only to then bring in this person, this offender, Onesimus, into the dynamic of being a saint now. And so what is he doing here? What is Paul doing? He is testing the depths of Philemon's love for God and for others in light of the cross. And that's what I love about this tiny little letter. It presents us with a rocky relationship with seemingly irreconcilable differences And it causes us today to think, do we seek reconciliation in times of relational conflict? So that said, let's first look at the story of relational conflict in Philemon, and then relational resolution in Christ, and then we'll end by thinking about restoring relationships to the glory of God. Those are the three points on the back of the bulletin. So let's begin first, relational conflict in Philemon. Reconstructing what happened between Philemon and Onesimus can be really tricky in this letter. We have to kind of read between the lines. You know something happened. There's a lot of tension once you enter into this letter, but you can't really figure out what has happened. What we can tell, based on various passages in this little letter, is that Philemon was this wealthy Christian master who owned a slave and probably more by the name of Onesimus. In the ancient world, slaves were often named Onesimus. The word means useful. And masters named their their slaves that because they wanted them to live up to their name. But this Onesimus proved to be useless. According to verse 18, he wronged and owes Philemon something. He may have wronged him by stealing from him to fund an escape, so a lot of people think he ran away. And he may owe him for the time that he's been away because he would have served as a slave. And so what we find here is that Onesimus is a transgressor, wronged, and he's a debtor, he owes. And he's all those things in the eyes of Philemon. Eventually, Onesimus somehow made his way into the same jail cell as Paul the Apostle. A lot of people think he was caught as a fugitive slave, that probably wasn't, that wasn't the case because they would have been put in a different jail cell. But somehow he ends up in there. And when he was in there, he heard the gospel. 
And he believed the gospel and became Paul's child in the faith. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. And there's this play on words. Useless is literally almost one letter off from being, being translated without Christ. Well, now he's useful. He's with Christ. And he's a believer. And so he was useless as a non-Christian. Now he's useful. Have you ever thought about your conversion that way? You've gone from useless to useful. So the relational, though, the relational uh, tension thickens because now we have a better idea. There is a master, high class, and a slave, low class. And we recognize that there was something that took place. This low class slave has offended an upper class master. Philemon, the Christian master, has been sinned against by an unbelieving, worthless slave. But by God's grace, heard the gospel and was converted. And now, Paul says in verse 12, I'm sending him back to you. Sending him back to you. So more than likely, he wasn't put in jail because Paul doesn't have the ability to just release a slave whenever he wanted to. So he probably was visiting Paul, gives him this letter, and takes it in hand. He walks, who knows, it could be 1,200 miles from Rome, it could be 120 miles from Ephesus, walks over because he knows that this is right for him to do, seeking reconciliation but needs the help of Paul, and he knocks on the door. Could you imagine? Could you imagine hearing Onesimus is at the door, Philemon's heart sinks, stomach drops, and you can, or it's actually heart drops, stomach sinks, and you can, imagine the, you can imagine the look on his face as Onesimus is standing there at the door with this letter in hand from the Apostle Paul. And although we can't be certain, you've got to realize, this, he's human, right? He had two paths before him, two ways that he can respond to this situation. He could function in the way of the world, or he could function in the way of the cross. Those were the two options before him. And in the way of the world, Philemon could have severely punished him. He could have even crucified him for running away. And often slaves were crucified. Roman law even permitted it, since Onesimus was legal property. He was, after all, a slave who was a living tool, subhuman. And so surely Philemon would have had that sinful, same sinful inclination in his own heart that resides within ours. Wanting justice to be done. Wanting the other party to suffer for what they did. Wanting nothing to do with those people who hurt us. Think of all the human emotions that would have emerged from his heart as he peered into the eyes of this transgressor and this debtor. All the hurt, disdain, and possibly unforgiving hatred. We're all familiar with this situation, aren't we? You see that person with whom you had a falling out, your stomach drops, and all the feelings of betrayal fill your heart. Everything but a desire to forgive and be reconciled is there. And like little Cain's, we begin to happily murder our brother or sister again and again and again 
perhaps in action, but if not in action, then in speech. If not in speech, then in our hearts. If not in front of their face, then at least to our friends. We want nothing to do with them. And the constant refrain of our hearts is, they're dead to me. We may even tighten the debilitating chains of unforgiveness with Luke 17.3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Turning that text into a license to sin, to hold a grudge, and to live in the misery of unforgiveness but all in the name of righteous anger. But when we actually stand before our Onesimus and are confronted by the same decision that Philemon was, which path will you choose? Will we choose prideful self-justifying retaliation, which only makes us miserable, cynical, and joyless? Or will we choose the way of the cross, leading to life in us and in others. More times than not, when we're in those situations, we need someone to help us, don't we? We need someone who loves us enough to intervene, since sin has a way of blinding us. And in Philemon and Onesimus' case, they had Paul, their common father in the faith. And this brings us to our second point, relational resolution in Christ. We see this relational resolution in Christ within Paul's fatherly intervention, which stems from an earnest love for both Philemon and Onesimus as his children in the faith. If you're a parent, you know the pain that comes along with having two siblings or two children at odds with one another. Some of you have to endure that pain. Some of you have to endure the pain of one sibling calling you simply to deride the other sibling. Or whenever you get together at family reunions, you have the one sibling and the other one having a huge blowout. And then everything is just horrific. It's really painful to see your children at odds. Our children are a bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. We are one with them united to them by blood. So when two kids who are one with us are divided, we ourselves feel divided. We feel torn in two. And Paul knows that relational pain well. As a father in the faith, for the waters of baptism are thicker than blood. And they are his children. And in verse 10, Onesimus called, is called his child. And in verse 19, Philemon is told that he owes his own self to Paul. So what he's getting at here is this birth from above, new creation. How does that happen? 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Philemon and Onesimus are therefore one with Christ, one with Paul, and so, one with one another. And as their father, Paul cannot stand the thought of two siblings being at odds with one another. It's neither good for them nor for the body of Christ to think that the eye can live apart from the hand. And so, what does Paul do? He cleverly works his way through this letter 
to move Philemon's heart in this appeal to accept Onesimus, verse 16, no longer as a bondservant or literally just slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. And, there, and here we find that there are two specific hallmarks of pastoral genius in this letter. And there are two hallmarks that I want to focus on in Paul's pastoral tactic. The first hallmark is this, that, the, uh, that Paul subtly shows Philemon who's boss, or more accurately, who's Lord. Right? Philemon is a master, or Lord, lowercase l. But Paul cleverly directs his eyes upward to see that there is a Lord, capital L, above him. The Lord Jesus Christ, and we see it in the bookends of verse 3 and 25. He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ twice. And that guides our direction to verse 5, where he is the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is the one who saved and redeemed both Philemon, a high Christian master in society, and this subhuman living tool of a slave low-status Onesimus. And God, according to Romans 10.12, is the same Lord who is over all. And Ephesians 6.9 even reminds us, Masters, stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master, that is the slave's master, and yours is where? In heaven. And there is no partiality with him. The Lord shows no Partiality. There is no Hindu caste system in Christianity. Whether you're a CEO and you make 200000 a year, or whether you work at Chick-fil-A for a measly 12000 a year, whether you are uh, a pastor or you're a layperson, or whether you have a graduate degree or you lack a high school diploma, we are all one in Christ Jesus and share the same spiritual status the same worth in Christ. And that should change the way that you think, feel, and act toward others. You see, by hailing Jesus Christ as Lord above these two parties, that should change the way that we view one another. The vertical necessarily impacts the horizontal. The second hallmark of Paul's pastoral tactic can be described with two words. Gentle compulsion. Gentle compulsion. Look at verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, or literally what is necessary, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. Do you notice how there's a command nestled within there? What is necessary? What's necessary? That he's reconciled with Onesimus. It's necessary. But he doesn't command it. Rather, because of love, he appeals to them. It's similar to what I do with my kids. When they were younger, you just command them, get your shoes on. What happens, parents? Inevitably, they don't get their shoes on. Or it takes giving that command 10 times before they actually listen sometimes. Uh, maybe your kids are holier than mine. But instead, I thought, wow, you know, I've, I've got actually um, this revelation that maybe I shouldn't command them directly. Maybe I should couch it in a different type of appeal. 
So I would tell my son when he was younger, I would say, hey, are you fast? And he'd say, yeah, I'm fast. I'd say, how fast? Really fast. And I'd say, I bet you can't run upstairs, get your shoes on, and come back downstairs in less than a minute. And before I could even finish that sentence, he's off and running, right? You can couch commands. I learned this in parenting after so many years. You can couch commands in different types of appeals. And Paul's doing something very similar. There, there is a command. But he intentionally doesn't, he doesn't issue an explicit command quite yet. He will in verse 17 and 20. But he doesn't use an imperative yet because he wants to couch everything in the gospel. He wants everything to flow out of grace, everything to flow out of someone who is so grateful for what Christ has done for them. There's so much more that can be said about that. But there is a salvific good that Paul is reminding Philemon about, that he wants his good to issue from recognizing that God has been good to him. And so what we find in Paul's approach is that he has a right to command, but he chooses not to. He takes a different approach. He prefers his Christ-like love appeal to pave the way for his commands. And that's why Luther says that Paul does not appeal Philemon with, quote, force or compulsion as lay within his rights. But Paul empties himself of his rights in order to compel Philemon also to waive his rights. What Christ has done for us with God the Father that St. Paul also does for Onesimus with Philemon. He's showing him that he has a right to even execute his slave. And he wants to show him by way of example, as we heard this morning, words or the life is more powerful than words at times, but even more powerful when they're joined together. He wants Philemon to follow suit, to lay down his rights and accept him. So only after laying the foundation of the gospel of love does Paul the pastor explicitly command to, he has two commands in verse 17 and 20. So let's begin by looking first at verse 20. He says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Notice the command, refresh my heart this exact same word appears one other time in this letter, and it's in verse 7. After giving thanks to God for his love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints, verse 5, he speaks in verse 7 of how God has refreshed the hearts of the saints through Philemon. Now, what's behind Paul's use of the word refresh? It's as if he's saying, Philemon, you believe in Christ, don't you? Yes, he says. You love him, don't you? Right. You love other believers, right? Yes. I know that you do, Paul says, because I've seen God work in you and through you to refresh the saints, the hearts of the saints, the bowels of the saints, literally, the very being. Now, Philemon, I want you to extend that same love to Onesimus. But notice the word Onesimus or the name doesn't even appear until later, until verse 10. So right now he's prepping him. He's trying to get him to recognize that Onesimus is now a saint and that he should refresh his heart. The one who sinned against you, the one who stole from you, the one who owes you, the one who hurts you. 
Allow the Lord to work in you and through you to refresh my heart. If you only read verse 20, you would think that Paul was speaking about his own individual heart. Refresh my heart. But if you first read verse 12, where he's, Onesimus is called his very heart, and the same word is in the original, then you would notice something deeper about what's taking place here in the command. Refresh my heart. And then you see in Christ, and that leaps off the page. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul's and Onesimus' individually distinct hearts are inseparably bound together in Christ. And this shows the relational depth of Christian koinonia. We often downplay it, but there's something deep going on when we are bound by one spirit to one another in the body of Christ. And one passage that always blows my mind in speaking of the body of Christ is Romans 12.5. When it speaks of believers being individually members of the body of Christ, but individually members one of another. And so closely knit are believers that it makes no sense to be disunited. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. It's a picture of one bread and one cup and unity in the body of Christ. Now this brings us to the other command then. In verse 17, if you consider me your partner, Paul says, receive or literally welcome him as me. Paul basically grabs Philemon with one hand and grabs Onesimus in the other, and he says, look at me. Am I your partner in the faith? Well, then you all are partners with one another. Welcome Onesimus Philemon. Welcome him. That same verb appears in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. It seems like an insignificant word, maybe a throwaway line or command, but it is a gospel gem in this letter. Paul is not simply asking Philemon, hey, can you pay for his room and board again? Uh, Can you bring him into your home? He doesn't have a place to live. Uh, Paul is gently commanding Philemon to forgive Onesimus as God has forgiven him, to be reconciled to his brother as Philemon has been reconciled to God. For the exact same word appears, Romans 15, 7, therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. This divine welcome is nothing other than divine reconciliation through the gospel of Christ. And this is the underlying story of resolution beneath the story of conflict in Philemon. And also in our own lives. We were transgressors and debtors, just like Onesimus, but God welcomed us. We were enemies, but God reconciled us, not counting our transgressions and sins against us, though he had the legal right to give us the death penalty. And he demolished that wall of hostility, that he might reconcile us to himself through the cross. God, the offended, superior, divine party, willingly and lovingly, 
forgave you through his son, turning us from enemies of the cross to children of the most high Lord. Do not forget that. The moment you forget that, the moment you forget how to act. It's true, isn't it? The ways that we think relate to the ways that we act. And Paul's appeal here is a shorthand proclamation of the gospel. And although subtle, the essence of it is captured in Ephesians 4.32, forgive one another as God in Christ has or forgave you. The call of the gospel is this. God has done this for you. Go and do likewise. But it's shocking to me how many Christians, instead of doing likewise, do otherwise. And this brings us to our final point, the call to restore relationships to the glory of God. Reconciliation, whether it be marriage or whether it be someone who murdered a brother, is pretty otherworldly when you see it. When you see it, you can't attribute anything to the human because you just can't believe that that's just happened. You know, I think of the woman who was a a white female cop off-duty entering an apartment and shot a man, black man, in his own apartment thinking it was hers and someone had broken in. And seeing the brother at the trial of this man who was murdered beckoning her to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive his love and and holding her and hugging her and crying and saying, I forgive you. I love you. That's otherworldly. That's phenomenal. And that brings glory to God. But we know as Christians we're called to restore relationships, but sometimes it's so difficult to reconcile what we think with real-life situations. And we often act like my neighbors in Philly, across the street. These two wonderful black women who were at odds with one another, and they literally had this 20-year feud. Best friends for a while, and then it just went south. Often when I was playing catch with my son, I would hear them exchanging words, words that can never be repeated. (laughs) And so we'd play catch for five minutes and walk right back in. They hated each other. Claimed to be Christians, never went to church, but claimed to be Christians and also had signs on their front yard that read, hate has no home here. (laughs) Well, it may have no home on your front yard, (laughs) but it certainly made its home in your hearts. And they hated each other. We know that we're called to restore relationships to the glory of Christ. But it's hard sometimes to reconcile that with real-life situations when we're confronted. And we need the help of the gospel. We need help. Because biblically, unforgiving Christians are described with a single word, ungrateful. Even as I say unforgiving Christian, that should cause you to balk, right? It's an oxymoron. How can a Christian who's been forgiven be unforgiving? It makes no sense. But they're called ungrateful in Scripture, basically. And why is that the case? Because they completely misunderstand the grace of God. 
Just think of the wicked servant in Matthew 18, 22 to 35, who after being forgiven an enormous amount of debt, 10,000 talents, which I think would have been around three to four billion dollars, threw one of his debtors in jail because he owed him a measly 100 talents, which would have been something roughly around $4,000. God forgave our inestimable debt and we gladly receive his grace. But we turn around and ungratefully consider our brother's sin against us more costly and more offensive than our own sin against God. We greatly rejoice at the demolition of the wall of hostility between us and God, but then behind God's back, we are picking up those same bricks and building up a wall to divide us from that person we can't stand. What makes us wiser than God? What makes us think that we can rebuild the wall of hostility that God has destroyed? Do we owe a greater debt? Or do they owe a greater debt than we owed to God? No, of course not. Is their sin more punishable than ours? No. But that's the status of of the hearts of many. And so we need to understand that that wicked servant received a punishment. That king was shocked at his ingratitude. And he was thrown in prison until every penny was paid. Obviously not in his lifetime. And so Jesus bluntly concludes, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And it's even clearer and harsher in Matthew 6, 15. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. In short, You can have no assurance that you're forgiven. And that is a scary prospect. Now, reconciliation does not mean that the relationship will be as it once was. Sin has consequences. And we shouldn't be reconciled in the same way. But neither can we harbor unforgiveness in our hearts until they repent. Jesus calls us even to love our enemies. So how is that possible? And he commands us to forgive our brother from the heart. The big question is, gosh, how do we do that? We preach the gospel to our stubborn hearts. We remind ourselves of what God has done for us in Christ and earnestly pray that the same can be done in our lives. We preach the gospel to that stubborn, prideful heart and realize this, That slave is your brother. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray that we would never be disjointed in our thinking to compartmentalize the vertical reconciliation we have with the horizontal reconciliation we're called to. And I pray for those who have difficult situations extremely difficult situations in front of them, I'm sure, and ask that your grace would abound in those uh, specific uh, parts of their lives and that you would receive glory as you bring brothers and sisters into a united relationship and receive all the glory as a result. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.